0: Episode 152 of the Marvel Studios News Podcast. My name is Sean Gerber, of course, joined by Paul Herman. Paul, I'm not going to ask you how you're doing this week, because I know we're both still working through a lot of things as we move forward, but I want to take the time before we get into this episode, and I just want to say thank you, and I know you do as well, Paul. Thank you to everyone out there who's reached out to us and offered their condolences over the passing of John Beerley. I know he meant a lot to many of you who are listening to the show, or who listen to this show, or listen to Fandalorians or Forcecast, or Modern Myth Media, or wherever you heard John, or maybe you just interacted with him on social media, but a lot of you have reached out since John passed, and even more of you have reached out after listening to last week's tribute episode, and I just want to say thank you so much for taking the time to do that. It's not an empty gesture. It really means a lot. Uh, to Paul and myself and Chris and Justin who were on the show with us last week. So I just want to want to let you know that that really means something to us and we really do appreciate it.
1: Yeah, and just exactly what Sean said, it's been a, a really insane, awful last couple of weeks, but everyone has been so supportive and everything about what's been going on and offering their support and prayers and thoughts. And, and, and believe us when we say it, those things go a long way. And you spread positivity and and i only encourage people to do that for everyone that's going through hard times whether it be you know things like this or even smaller things that are you know reach out to more people and be supportive that's how we support that's how we get through life is by supporting each other and i just i just really want to encourage that with everyone to keep supporting people in everything because you know we can tear each other down and argue and yell and say, you're wrong, you're wrong about this. But in the end, we all need to be some more supportive of each other. And it's uh, we'll be a better place the more grace and support we give each other. So please do that. And uh, thanks again for all your, uh, your prayers and thoughts, people. Thank you.
0: Very well said. And again, thank you to all of you who have uh, who've reached out. And even if you haven't reached out, and you, but you offered your support by listening to the show, thank you so much for doing that. And as I said at the end of that episode, thank you so much for letting us tell you about our friend John Beerley. So for this week's show, our Expanding the Universe series is going to still be on pause for another week because so much has happened since we last did a Marvel Studios news episode besides the tribute from last week. There's been a lot of news, and so we're going to go ahead and take this episode and uh, use this opportunity to play catch-up. There have been a lot of big stories that we want to get to and we want to cover for all of you, starting with something that broke last week, and that is the news that Sam Raimi is in talks to direct Doctor Strange in the Multiverse of Madness. That was how Variety reported it, that Sam Raimi was in talks. I'm pretty sure this is a done deal. It often is by the time the trades report that, that uh, someone is in talks for a movie, whether it's directing or acting, not always, but often that's the case. And since the news broke, we saw uh, Sam Raimi's friend and frequent collaborator, Bruce Campbell, acknowledging the news. And usually friends don't acknowledge things that aren't done deals because they know they're not supposed to do that in Hollywood. But also former Doctor Strange and the Multiverse of Madness director, Scott Derrickson, also tweeted his endorsement of Sam Raimi and remember that Scott Derrickson is still, an, even though he's no longer directing it, is still an executive producer on this film. So I'm pretty much 100% convinced or 99.99999% convinced that this is happening. Sam Raimi is directing Doctor Strange in the Multiverse of Madness. And I got to say, Paul, I was shocked by this news. It broke last Wednesday and I was recording an episode where I was getting ready to record an episode of the Daily Bugle that I do Monday through Friday on our Patreon. And, all, and I was about to talk about how it was a slow news day. And then all of a sudden, we saw that, uh, and then all of a sudden, this news breaks. And I was just, uh, I was completely blown away by it. I knew that Marvel Studios was going to find a capable director, or not just a capable director, they were going to find a good or great director to come in after Scott Derrickson left this film. I was completely confident that they were going to be able to weather that storm as they have in the past, and, the, and Doctor Strange and the Multiverse of Madness was gonna stay on track and still be a really great movie. But when I was envisioning best case scenarios of different directors who might be able to step in, this is kind of like that, only it's better because it's Sam Raimi, it's the guy who directed, I know he also directed Spider-Man 3, but he directed the first two Spider-Man films, which are still to this day landmarks and, and really significant milestones in the history of the superhero movie genre. But it's not just about him being on those movies. It's him reteaming with Kevin Feige, who was a co-producer on the first Spider-Man film, executive producer on Spider-Man 2 and 3. But this time, with Feige and Raimi teaming up, there are no bosses at Sony. Feige is the boss. So it's just this team-up of Raimi and Feige, and of course, everybody else at Marvel Studios and all the other collaborators on the film. That's really exciting. But then when I think about what Sam Raimi brings to the table, it's not just his history In the superhero genre, it's things like Evil Dead. And it's the kinds of things that Sam Raimi does where tonally he can mash up a lot of different things and it it can all work and it can all somehow balance, they can all somehow balance each other out. It's a very difficult trick that Sam Raimi is able to pull off with his directing style, but I think it's perfect for something like Doctor Strange in the Multiverse of Madness, which even though Derrickson has left, I still think it's going to be scary, maybe not scary throughout the entire film, but I don't think that was ever the intention anyway. There are going to be scary elements to it. There are going to be superhero elements to it. And there are also going to be really charming and funny elements to it. I think there's going to be so many different things going on in Doctor Strange and the Multiverse of Madness, so many different tones to try and wrangle and strike a balance between. And I feel like Raimi is the perfect guy to do it.
1: This was so unprecedented and so from left field but probably the best news that I could have heard, I think, regarding Marvel anyway, because of everything that's been going on the last couple of weeks, Sean, I needed to hear something that's kind of just, you know, get some escapism, if you will, and something to get my mind off of. I feel you. And this was one that completely made me, it really did take me off my feet a little bit because it was so out there and so out of nowhere and people saw my reaction and you saw that I was in shock. And what's amazing is that how perfect of a director he is for this, because if he didn't direct a Spider-Man movie and he would, you would have cat or you would have got Sam Ramsey. And I know he did the evil dead films. I would have said, that's perfect. <laughs> you know, army of darkness. It's it's perfect. It's so Perfect. And now when when you combine that with Spider-Man, you've got the Evil Dead, you've got Spider-Man, you have Dark Man, you've got Drag Me to Hell, which is an underrated movie. That movie is ridiculous. And I'll get to back to that in a second. But you have a director that has a lot of range because he's done dramas, he's done action films, he's done horror films. This is a guy who knows how to make movies and not just movies, he knows how to make popcorn, good old fashioned movies and he can make make any kind and I think that's what makes Sam Raimi so valuable in a Marvel, in an MCU film, is that he can do anything. And he's done kids' movies, for God's sakes, with Oz the Great and Powerful, another underrated film. So mm-hmm. I, this is just a really great move for everyone. And I, I got to say, and I know Hollywood's full of egos, and I know and I know Sam Raimi is going to get a load of money for doing this, blah, 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 blah. blah. But I got to say, to do Doctor Strange after you've done three Spider-Man films... There's gotta and 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 go not I want to say come back to Marvel, but there's a little bit of a checking your ego at the door kind of a thing. And I don't and what I'm trying to say by that is I I don't think Sam Raimi has much of an ego. I think he's like, oh yeah, that's a great that's a great idea. I'll do that. And he's not narrow minded enough to say I've already done three. I'm good. Okay, because that very well could have been the attitude that a lot of these directors want to do because. Again, a lot of this stuff is beneath a lot of them. Not not everyone, but, or they use it to springboard their career. And and once they've done that, they're like, I'm I'm good. I don't have to go back. What's interesting is that Sam Raimi is a veteran filmmaker. Dude's done all kinds of stuff. And he's coming back to Marvel to do this. And it sounds like the perfect fit for Sam Raimi. And I just, what's fascinating is that how just, just how perfect it is. It really, it, it is. It blows me away. How perfect. And if you haven't seen many Ramy films besides Spider-Man, then the Spider-Man films, then I, I got to say that you can just go through his IMDB and just see a, a really vast array of different kinds of films. Now his roots are horror. He's definitely got a lot of horror stuff in it and in, in, in him and everything. But the guy had um, direct, directed a movie, a movie called the gift. Um, that's a, that's yep. a drama. That's a, that's a very good movie.
0: Um, he did the quick and the dead in 1995 that, before a lot of people knew yeah. who Leonardo DiCaprio it was Sharon
1: stones in that movie. I mean, yep. yeah, Gene Hackman, Gene Hackman. I mean, this
0: guy who somehow is 90 years. I old. I can't believe that.
1: Um, so he, this dude's got range and I just, it's, it's so exciting to see with not just Dr. Strange, but an MCU film and think about this too, Sean, I don't think this could be a gateway for him to do more films with the mcu i i don't if this goes as well as, as i think it will i think this will be a far superior film to scott erickson's first dr strange movie and i know a lot of you are probably gonna get grown and, and roll your eyes and yell and, and yell at me on the comments and and itunes reviews and say i have a mouth breather or whatever like, i totally get it sam rammy knows these characters, and and obviously everyone's already gone online. As I and as soon as it got announced, Sean, I knew the pictures were going to be out. The yeah. Doctor Strange reference, I, I'm like, well, here comes the Doctor Strange references. Yeah. First thing I said to myself, and sure enough, here's a Doctor but Strange. Here's what,
0: that, here's what that really tells you, besides the joke of it and the the coincidence of it. Yes, Sam Raimi loves Marvel. He loves superheroes, in particular, he really loves Stanley and Steve Ditko. And that creative partnership that had an incredible run creating Spider Man and then telling so many Spider Man stories, they also had a fantastic, not not as well known run with Doctor Strange in those Strange Tales books, starting with 110, and because that was a book that was split between Doctor Strange and other stories initially with the Thing and, and the Human Torch. But that Stan Lee Steve Ditko run on Doctor Strange, I did a lot of Doctor Strange reading in the run up to that movie. I had already read some Doctor Strange stuff, but. I went all out to find more stuff, and as I read that in, for the first time ever, ran, read all the way through that Stanley Steve Ditko run on Doctor Strange, I loved it. I think it's still, to this day, the best Doctor Strange comic book material that I have found, and I also think it's Stanley's best writing, and it's some of Steve Ditko's best work as an artist. It's really incredible stuff, and I do think that Scott Derrickson honored that in the first film, but I think there's an opportunity to go even further with it in Doctor Strange and the Multiverse of Madness. And I do think that Scott Derrickson could have got it there, but I also feel like Sam Raimi is a perfect director to come in and deliver on all the different elements of a movie like Doctor Strange and the Multiverse of Madness. And and especially if, if Derrickson doesn't want to do it anymore, creative differences or whatever happened, then you need somebody else. And Sam Raimi, I can't imagine another director who could have stepped in where I would have been this excited. There, there are, I'm sure, other directors who I would have thought, yeah, it's a good choice or I'm confident or trust Marvel because they've made good director choices in the past. When they picked, uh, when they picked up Peyton Reed after Edgar Wright left Ant-Man, that worked out really well, especially on that first Ant-Man movie that I really, really love. So, And I still really like Ant-Man and the Wasp, but I love the first Ant-Man film. And so they've been in this position before and they've been able to still be successful. So I still had all of that confidence around Doctor Strange and the Multiverse of Madness. But with Sam Raimi specifically, I just feel like Multiverse of Madness is a movie that tonally is going to reflect that title. It, when the title is in the Multiverse of Madness, I kind of picture a movie that's all over the place. Yes. And somehow has to be wrangled and be cohesive and have all these different tones at play And yet they all have to gel with one another, and you have to be able to transition from those things. And we've seen that in Marvel movies. For all the talk out there that Marvel movies have the same tone, that's not correct. Even single, even individual Marvel movies run through different tones, with great examples being things like Infinity War and Avengers Endgame. The examples go on and on. I could just start listing a bunch of MCU films. But with Doctor Strange and the Multiverse of Madness specifically, with what I expect for that film, I just feel like it's going to be all over the place, and you need somebody to have a handle on all the different things that this movie can do or potentially do as we're just imagining it right now. And Sam Raimi is that guy to me. And I love that this is somebody who has, that this is somebody who has a, a genuine respect and love for this material and a love for these characters. And he actually did say in an interview about a little less than four and a half years ago with The Week, he was asked about whether or not he would make a Marvel Studios movie. And here's what he said, quote, I think they're so complete now, Marvel. They probably don't need me anymore, but if they needed me, I'd love to. It's great to be wanted, end quote. Well, they needed him and he wanted to do it. And I don't think he would have just come in for any Marvel movie. Yeah. But I'll bet Doctor Strange is a character that Sam Raimi really likes. That character did not have to be mentioned in Spider-Man. Exactly. You know, in the Spider-Man series or Spider-Man 2, like that didn't have to happen. That's there because Sam Raimi wanted it there. And Sam Raimi wanted that character mentioned uh, as, again, to continue honoring Stan Lee and Steve Ditko, another one of their co-creations. And so I'll bet this is something specifically that Sam Raimi is really excited about. And I just feel like he's such a good choice for it. I, I can't totally wrap my head around what this movie is going to be, yeah. but I, I love that about it. I really love that about it. I don't want to be able to know ahead of time exactly what mm-hmm. Dr. Strange and the multiverse of madness movie looks like. I just feel supremely confident that whatever it is, Sam Raimi is going to be the guy who can deliver it as well as anyone could.
1: One of the things that I'm really excited about is not just Sam Raimi, but again, I'm not the biggest fan of of Dr. Strange. It's the the first film. It's not, it's not terrible, but it's not my favorite from people who know, but for those who listen to the show will also remember me praising Doctor Strange in Infinity War. I loved him in Infinity War. So having that, I almost feel like this is going to be the Thor's Captain America bump from Avengers, like from the first Avengers film. Totally. And that we're gonna have that established Doctor Strange already, and he's gonna work. I mean, he looked he worked great in Ragnarok with with Tyka. So he did. I mean, so it feels like he worked great with the exception of his own movie. So with that being said, we get all that origin stuff out of the way, which I do think is important. Don't get me wrong. But now with, with, when you combine that with Sam Raimi, like you said, Sean, this is going to be a really zany movie. And, I, and I, I think it's going to be all over the place, I think, in a good way, because it's going to be... There's going to be lots of humor that's going to be, I think, unique to this film specifically because of Sam Ramy's sensibilities. Mm-hmm. But I also think I go back to um, if if you're wondering again, if you're wondering about Sam Rami, here's what I'm going to tell you right now: Evil, the first Evil Dead movie, is a low, super mega low budget movie. He made it in college. It's it's ridiculous. It's a, it takes itself. It's very serious. It tries to be a very serious horror film. But you know what? I'm going to go ahead and say this. Skip it. Go watch Evil Dead 2 and then Army of Darkness. Go watch those movies back to back. Because Evil Dead 2 is essentially Evil Dead 1 and then half the movie is Evil Dead 2. Long story, but just bear with me. Evil Dead 2 is what I think what Doctor Strange in the Multiverse of Madness is get basically going to be as far as tonally. Because if you watch that movie... That's, and for the record evil dead 2 is one of my favorite movies ever i love evil dead 2 and army of darkness i grew up on those films i watched them a thousand times i love them and so when you watch evil dead 2 specifically army of darkness is a little more comedy but evil dead 2 is that that slapstick comedy slash still a little bit horror and taking itself seriously and you know it combines fantasy, horror, and comedy all together. And it's, perf- and it's a perfect blend in my opinion. And I think when I, when I think of Doctor Strange, that world of Evil Dead 2, that's what it reminds me of. And if you're going to bring in a character like <clears throat> Nightmare, then Sam Raimi is 100% perfect to bring that to screen so
0: if nightmare is in this movie which we don't know we don't
1: but what i'm saying is it would make sense because that would be up his alley 100 so especially with all the different surrealness things you can have in that and so again multiverse of madness we don't know exactly what that pertails you know entails or whatever so We'll see, but what I'm what I'm just trying to say is, if you want to see a good example besides the Spider-Man films of what Sam Raimi can do from a tonal wise of of Doctor Strange, that I think is the closest thing to a Doctor Strange story from the comic books, Evil Dead Two, one hundred percent. Watch that movie, and you don't tell me that guy is going to just, just kill Doctor Strange. It's
0: perfect. I'm with you because when I heard this news, there is that first part where you just naturally think about the Spider-Man movies and Sam Raimi's history in the genre, but my mind kept drifting back toward the Evil Dead movies because tonally, when I talk about balancing things, it's a really tricky thing to have something be scary and also be funny. That's not easy to do, but those are the kinds of things that Sam Raimi, I think, is able to navigate. I I think for Multiverse and the Madness, it's not just going to be scary stuff versus comedic stuff, it's going to be those and a whole lot of other things going on throughout this story because you're going throughout the multiverse. And so you're going to have some crazy, surreal, fantastical elements. You might have some places they go if they're going to different spots in the multiverse that maybe where things are a little more grounded, maybe where things are a little bit scarier. You're going, to have, you're going to be going to so many different places and you still have to have it come together in this cohesive way, which is going to be a difficult trick. But I think Sam Raimi is capable of of pulling it off, and I'm, I'm very excited about what I think he might be able to bring to it. And I am also excited about this partnership, as I was mentioning before, about Sam Raimi and Kevin Feige. What do these two guys come up with when they don't have a boss? I know Kevin Feige's got bosses at the Walt Disney Company, but they pretty much let that guy do what he's going to do because he's very successful. So those guys teaming up without necessarily having to worry about what a studio wants, because I know the the elephant in the room when we talk about Sam Raimi as a superhero movie director is you got to go back to Spider-Man 3. And famously, Sam Raimi didn't want Venom in his Spider-Man series. Sony really wanted Venom in Spider-Man 3 because they did, uh, because of course, Venom was a really popular character, as was shown in Venom's solo movie. So Sony wanted to capitalize on that Venom popularity. Sam Raimi would have rather not used Venom. The results weren't so great in Spider-Man 3. Now, I don't fully give Sam Raimi a pass on Spider-Man 3 because he's still the director of the movie and is still tasked with making the most of it, even if it's not really the character he wanted to work with. And if he was so opposed to it, he could have walked. So he decided to, to stick it out and make the movie. So I, I can't totally give him a pass for it. But great directors are capable of making not-so-great movies. And what I do know about Sam Raimi in the superhero space is you go back to that first Spider-Man film, you go back to the second one, the second one is still widely regarded as one of the greatest superhero movies of all time. It would probably be on that list for me. I would even put the first one on that list. I don't know how high up those movies are on the list anymore because there have been so many great movies since then, and I don't really worry or focus on rankings very much, but those are two landmark superhero movies. I mean, there, are other, there were other Marvel movies that got things rolling a little bit and created some momentum, Blade, and then X-Men in 2000. But when you're talking about what movie really launched the modern superhero genre in the way that we know it today, you do have to think about the overall impact of Spider-Man. And it was so much bigger than any of the previous Marvel movies. And it was on a level that was bigger than Batman and Superman movies. I mean, in 2002, with an international, with, of course, never mind the inflation of it all, there's that. But in 2002, with inflation, and of course, the if you adjusted for inflation, but also think about this, the international market was nothing in 2002 compared to what it is today. When you think about how much these movies make overseas, there wasn't this massive overseas market. The Chinese movie market, for example, was nothing compared to what it is today. In that marketplace, that first Spider-Man film made over 800 million dollars worldwide, over 400 million dollars domestic. It was huge. And that's the movie that put the brass ring out there that got the studios really serious about making comic book movies. And that was the one that was the brass ring that they were chasing, that they were reaching out for ever since. I mean, that the success of that first Spider Man film, and then also the second one, I guarantee you that went a long way in Marvel Studios being able to be their own shop and end up getting financing on their movies and all of that and being able to make their own films and then have the MCU that we have today. Spider Man it went a long way in allowing things like that to happen. The Spider-Man franchise went a long way in the Batman series getting rebooted. Warner Brothers was messing around with different ideas for the Batman series for years. And then Spider-Man comes out in 2002, and they're like, oh, we better figure this out. So a year later, they're hiring Christopher Nolan and casting Christian Bale so they can start working together to make a Batman movie in 2004 that would come out in 2005, which we know as Batman Begins. So Spider-Man really got studios a lot more serious about the long-term financial prospects of superhero movies. And so obviously that played a, a massive role in, in the, the history of the genre. And Sam Raimi gets to take credit for that. If we're going to give him the blame that maybe he deserves for Spider-Man 3, we got to give him the credit that he deserves for Spider-Man and Spider-Man 2. So this guy is a legend. And, and that's actually kind of what makes him unique. As Marvel Studios director hires go, he's kind of in a a different class as far as somebody who's already directed massive blockbuster hits prior to working with Marvel. That's not usually who they go with, but who cares? I mean, he's the right guy for the job. And I think for Marvel Studios, this just further enforces their approach to it, which is regardless of experience or anything like that, or regardless of external circumstances or whatever it is, who's the best person for the job? And I think they went out and they found that person in Sam Raimi for Doctor Strange and the Multiverse of Madness.
1: When Sam Raimi comes in, he's going to give such a unique take on the MCU. And with his experience with Spider-Man, it does open up a lot of different possibilities that I think that we maybe weren't even thinking about. And I think that's what's really exciting. And that's why I want to say... I think Sam could do more films down the line and and maybe not to Dr. Strange films. I don't know. I really do think that depending on how successful this is, that he very well could be doing a I would not be shocked if he ended up doing an Avengers film. I'll just say that.
0: I was about to say the same thing. Like I was about to say, let's not worry about getting too far ahead of ourselves and just say it. I mean, I'm not saying right now Sam Raimi should be considered the favorite to direct the next Avengers movie. But he could be on that list. I mean, I, I certainly think that Ryan Coogler might get that offer with what he's been doing with Black Panther so far, assuming everything is just as successful and keeps rolling with Black Panther 2, which I believe it will. There are going to be some options for Marvel with the Avengers series, but I do think Sam Raimi could potentially be on that list. But of course, a lot of that uh, is going to be determined by how he does with Doctor Strange and the Multiverse of Madness. And I think he's going to do very well. I'm very excited about this hire. I can't wait to see what a Sam Raimi Doctor Strange movie looks like. One more note from Variety's report, and this kind of goes into, uh, I think this points to a lesson learned from Marvel Studios, and I'll discuss why. But one more note in Variety's article about Sam Raimi being in talks to direct the Doctor Strange sequel is that Rachel McAdams will not be back as Christine Palmer in the film. She, of course, was in the first movie, but she's not going to be returning for this sequel. I'm not totally surprised by this, and I want to preface all of this, actually, by saying that I really like Rachel McAdams as an actress, and I think she did an excellent job in in the first Doctor Strange movie. I enjoyed her character. I enjoyed the relationship between her and Doctor Strange, so it's nothing against her whatsoever, and I'm a much bigger fan of that first film than Paul is, and so it's, it's not about anything being wrong with Doctor Strange or her performance in that film. It's just the role that her character plays in the overall structure of the MCU, and in Doctor Strange's life. When I talked about there being kind of a a lesson learned here is, Paul, you brought up the Avengers bump. Of course, I've been thinking about phase two, as we have some of these characters who had their first films in phase three, and they're going to go into their second movie in phase four. You look at a character like Doctor Strange, where, yeah, he could have a bump coming off of Infinity War, because I think Infinity War was the best Doctor Strange material that I've seen so far in the MCU. I really like the first movie, also love Doctor Strange and Thor Ragnarok, but my favorite portrayal so far of Doctor Strange in the MCU is the one that we get in Infinity War, and the little bit that we get of him in Endgame. But really, Infinity War is the standout for me right now with Doctor Strange. And so when you go into that second movie, what I think you want to avoid is a trap that Thor the Dark World fell into which is there was this relationship that was established between Thor and Jane. And while I liked that relationship, and I actually think it's an underrated romance in the first Thor film, the issue in the second film, the trap that I think they fell into, was this need to get Thor back to Jane very early in the movie. And I I wouldn't say that it's all based on Thor going back to Jane, but having Jane be a part of it tied so much of the story to Earth. Now, it didn't have to. Thor could have picked up Jane and they could have gone elsewhere throughout the, the Nine Realms. That could have happened and it probably will happen in Thor Love and Thunder in some, in some form or fashion. But things were so tied to Earth and, and grounded in such a way that I don't think the Thor franchise really needed. And so when did the Thor franchise really get that shot in the arm? It was in Ragnarok where they just, I mean, there's barely any Earth in Thor Ragnarok. They just went out into the Nine Realms. They went to Sakaar. We had a lot of Asgard stuff. They were just all over the place in Thor Ragnarok. And that really helped that movie. They just embraced the inherent craziness and wackiness and just out there fantastical elements of Thor. They really embraced that like never before in Thor Ragnarok. And so I think this is Marvel's way of communicating that they want to do the same thing in Doctor Strange and the Multiverse of Madness, but they don't they want to just do that in film two. They don't want to wait for film three. To go crazier with it and go further into the multiverse and the, the, the magic and mysticism of Doctor Strange. Why wait? Let's go do that now. And a character like Christine Palmer, who's a trauma surgeon in an emergency room, what role can she play for Stephen Strange to go off in the multiverse of madness besides just tagging along in an environment where she doesn't really fit? I can't see how she would have a role in this plot that would be all that interesting or meaningful. So if it's not going to be a meaningful role for her, then they can leave her on the sidelines. And I don't think, with the way things ended in the first Doctor Strange film, I didn't sense that their romance was being rekindled or anything like that. They are friends, but we don't need to see Stephen Strange interacting with Christine Palmer all the time. We don't always need to be checking in there. Doesn't mean she can never come back. She could be in a future Doctor Strange film. She could be in another MCU film in a completely different franchise or Disney Plus series when there's something that's actually more meaningful for her to do. But in a story where you're going off into the multiverse, I don't really see Christine Palmer as a character being a fit for that. It has nothing to do with Rachel McAdams as an actress, it's just the role that her character plays. And so I think it's better to just not have her. And then maybe you can have a character that I actually thought was going to be in the first Doctor Strange movie. And I was hoping Rachel McAdams was going to play in the first Doctor Strange movie. You have a character like Clea, who didn't get to factor into the plot of the first film. But if they're going out through, if they're exploring the multiverse, I know Wanda's going to be part of the story as well, but maybe Stephen Strange and or Wanda Maximoff discover Clea in their adventures in this movie, and I would love to see that. So you have, by leaving Christine Palmer out of it, you, make, you open up space for other characters to play a part, and it's characters who actually fit into a story uh, that might be set much more throughout the multiverse than being grounded on Earth.
1: You, you put yourself in a box a little bit if you try to establish more of what came before it, especially if it's going to be called the multiverse of madness. And there's different, all you know, you have a lot going on already. I think it leaves room to introduce new characters. And I don't and let's be real. I don't know if her character was. And, and that movie in general was such a, a giant hit from not financially, but from a from a critically and, and kind of retrospective aspect with with the fans. If her character was necessarily connected with a, a, a big audience, but also when you put it in the context of a new director and a new direction where you're kind of going. I kind of feel like you kind of don't you you have you
0: don't have a lot of time to kind of establish those things. You want to keep going forward. I think you hit on a, a really important piece there when you talked about how using Christine Palmer it kind of ties things back to the continuity of the first film, maybe a little too much because you have to understand the reality of this as well, which is that there's a lot of people who love Doctor Strange and Infinity War and Endgame who never saw the first movie. And the first movie was successful. It made over 650, I think over $660 million worldwide. It was not a flop by any stretch of the imagination. It was a hit, just not on the level as we've seen with some of the other astronomical results that other Marvel Studios films have delivered over the years. It was a hit, but clearly there are a lot of people who will watch Doctor Strange in the Multiverse of Madness because they love the character in Infinity War who may not have gone back and caught themselves up on the first movie. And so you want something that they can just kind of jump into and start fresh and and also just really fully explore the concept of Doctor Strange. Because my one criticism of the first movie is that I feel like, you know, I I felt at the time, and I, I still feel this way, that it could have gone further with it. There was a lot of cool stuff they did, like the tour of the multiverse that Stephen Strange goes on, that the Ancient One sends him on, Uh, When he first shows up at Kamartaj, that's great. Going into the dark dimension and bargaining with Dormammu, that stuff is awesome in the first Doctor Strange movie, and and other stuff too with the time stone. There's a lot of great stuff in there, and I think they did a good job handling the origin story of Doctor Strange. But at the same time, I mean, we we spent so much time grounded on Earth and not necessarily going out into the multiverse. And so, in the same way that the Thor franchise was kind of begging to just go out into the cosmos. I feel like the Doctor Strange franchise is begging to go out into the multiverse. And so it needs to have, a. uh, the story needs to involve characters who really serve that um, and allow Doctor Strange to go out in a a much deeper exploration of the multiverse and the the magic and the mysticism that is unique to this character in this franchise. And I feel like uh, setting aside a character of Christine Palmer, at least for now, uh, will ultimately benefit the film and it will serve that purpose. And And again, it's got nothing to do with Rachel McAdams as a performer. It doesn't even have that much to do with Christine Palmer not being a great character. She's just not a great character for this story. The only thing you could have her do really would be have Stephen Strange swing by the hospital or she swings by the sanctum sanctorum to have a quick, hey, how you doing with Dr. Strange to establish that they're still friends, but then she's not going to be involved in the plot. So what's really the point of that? it's better to just move on and focus on the characters that really will serve a story that lives up to this fantastic title in Doctor Strange in the Multiverse of Madness. Well said. Okay, now before we move on to our next topic, I just want to take a moment to thank Podcorn for sponsoring this episode of Marvel Studios News. We've just started working with Podcorn, and they are already helping us find and connect with sponsors that will actually matter to you, our listeners. We know a lot of you out there have podcasts or you hope to launch your own podcast and you're looking for ways to monetize independent podcasters. We don't do it for the money, but why not have a way to be compensated for your hard work? Podcorn will help you with that. Podcorn is a marketplace that connects podcasters with amazing podcast sponsorship opportunities. These include host-read ads, interview segments, topical discussions, and more. And one of the best parts about this is that Podcorn is not a middleman. There isn't one. Podcasters of all sizes can simply use Podcorn's platform to browse opportunities and you maintain control the entire time. You set your own rates. You determine the brands you want to work with. You collaborate with those brands directly without any exclusivities. You never give up any rights to your podcast. You have full control over how and when you monetize. We've already been browsing and connecting with brands on the marketplace. It's so easy to navigate. It's a great way to look at the brands what they offer, and if they, you think they offer something that your audience would be interested in hearing about. It's a super fast and efficient way to find the right sponsorship opportunities that are the right fit for your podcast and your listeners. So a big thanks to Podcorn once again for sponsoring this episode of the podcast. Please visit podcorn.com to explore sponsorship opportunities and start monetizing your podcast. That's podcorn.com, or you can hit the link in the show notes of this episode over on marvelstudiosnews.com. Okay, now our next topic or really, I guess you could call this a set of topics, it's all about Disney Plus. It's all about footage from these series. We also have some approximate dates for a couple of these series. So just to tell a little story that gives me a little pat on the back, so on the Thursday episode before the Super Bowl or I'm excuse me, before the big game, on the Thursday before that game, I was I did an episode of the Daily Bugle on the Patreon And I was talking about the potential ads that we might see during the game, and I talked about how there would most likely be a Black Widow spot, and there was, but I also said that what I was going to be looking for, because if it was up to me and I was Disney and I was going to spend $5 million on an ad, I would want a Disney Plus ad. And also, if I was going to spend that money on a Disney Plus ad, I would want to show the first ever footage from the Falcon and the Winter Soldier and WandaVision. I didn't predict Loki, but I did say that they should do that. I thought I thought they would. And because it's what I would do, not that they would do the things that I would do. But I figured that it was going to happen. We were going to get a Disney Plus spot and it would have footage from the Falcon and the Winter Soldier and WandaVision. And then sure enough, during the fourth quarter of the game, I was actually just getting up off the couch to refill my plate. But I was frozen in my tracks and then immediately sent back to my seat because I saw the screen open up. And there's the Captain America shield, the Sam Wilson Captain America shield stuck in a tree. And I knew exactly what that was. And it was on. And not only did we get a TV plus spot with Marvel footage, it was all Marvel footage. It was exclusively Marvel Studios footage, which tells you exactly how Disney feels about Marvel Studios as a brand and its value to Disney plus is that if they're going to spend five million bucks on an ad, it's all Marvel because they know that the world already knows about Star Wars and The Mandalorian and Baby Yoda. They already know that that's on Disney+. Plus. What you need the world to know about now is that the MCU, the real MCU, is coming to Disney+, Plus in a big, big way. And so we got, this ad, uh, we got this ad. So, Paul, before we get into anything that's actually in the ad... Did you see this right as it aired during the game? I know you were watching the game, but did you did you see this as it aired, or was this? I just want to make sure you didn't miss it in a bathroom break or something.
1: Oh no, no, I I I saw this, and I I was I was pretty blown away that they showed as much as they did, to be quite honest. And it really did a great job of teasing things. And I, the one thing I will say, just without analyzing it, which we'll obviously get into, is how different it felt already compared to what we've got before in that short amount of time in in my opinion anyway there was a definite different feel for me and just in sensing that they did a great job of kind of showing us something new with and also i think showing the audience and the mainstream audience mainly that this is the new direction of the um, marvel cinematic universe and it was really cool because, again, the shots they chose to use, with the exception of the Loki stuff at the end, which is a typical Loki. But everything else besides that was a lot different. And, and and again, showcasing the fact that this is not going to be a cookie cutter, just the same thing, slapping it down and everything else. No, this is different. And we'll get to reasons why. But I, at least for me, as a diehard Marvel zombie... I I respected the fact they're showing the audience, hey, this is something, this new direction is an actual new direction, not just, here we go, new bad guy, like, here's new stuff, new sets up, everything. It's really It was really, really interesting.
0: Yeah, the only thing that's the same about it to me is the production value that we can perceive as an audience. It's different, but this doesn't look like, you know, sometimes when you see superhero television shows, a lot of times you look at it and you go, okay, well, that's, That's the TV version of the thing that we see in movies. No, this looks like the same level of quality. I know the money isn't exactly the same, but these are very expensive shows and they're treating them in a cinematic way. And that comes across in the footage that we got during this spot. So the production value looked great. Uh, But let's get into the specific footage that we got starting with The Falcon and the Winter Soldier. So we get Sam Shield stuck in that tree. There's a Bucky voiceover from Sebastian Stan saying it's time. Uh, And then we see presumably how the shield got there because we get a shot of Sam actually throwing the shield into a tree. I never thought we would get a a shot quite as cool as Sam actually throwing the shield. Granted, he's in casual clothes. He's not dressed as Captain America. You know we're not going to get that until later on. Maybe we will get that in a trailer for the Falcon and Winter Soldier at some point. Although if they save that reveal for the actual show, I'm not going to be mad at him. Anyway. And then we, it cuts to these guys flying in these wingsuits. One person actually turns around and fires a gun. It looks like Sam or the Falcon in his new costume is in pursuit of these guys, although that could have just been cut together to look that way. Don't know if it's part of the same sequence or not, but it kind of looks like it is. Flying through this canyon. Then we get Bucky pointing a gun at Zemo's face. And then we see Bucky, we presume anyway, because it looks like it's from the same uh, sequence, even though it's a different shot, dropping these bullets right in front of Zemo's face. Then we get... John Walker in full costume as U.S. agent, or maybe they're going to call him Captain America in the show. I know people are thinking that as well, uh, but whether it's U.S. agent or Captain America, he's running out for some huge reception on a football field. There's fireworks going off in the background. He's, he's high-fiving the marching band leader because there's a marching band as he's running up to the stage. Then we get Bucky walking away from Sam, and then we get a little bit of that predator handshake action between Sam and Bucky in a quick shot uh, that shows uh, Sam holding the shield. And I know some of that was cut in later in the spot after they showed WandaVision footage, but I just want to keep it focused on the Falcon and the Winter Soldier for now. But a lot of good stuff here. Everything looked great. That shot of Sam and the new Falcon suit in flight was awesome. Just, I absolutely love it. And I, and I love the new Falcon costume. Sam's suits have been very tactical in the MCU so far. And this still has that, but we're a little more superhero-y, if I can coin the phrase, although I think we've used that before, and I'm sure others have. He, it's a little more superhero esque that Falcon suit, and so as as a lover of costumes, Paul, i I got to imagine you were a big fan of that shot.
1: Yeah, this trailer was oh my god! All the costumes looked fantastic, and yeah, everything that we got was the U.S. agent one. I want to say specifically. That and the Wanda one. Now we're focused on the U.S. or the Falcon and Winter Soldier stuff. Those are the ones that really kind of stood out stood out to me, and that whole shot. But yeah, the costumes were all spot on, one hundred percent. And what I love about it is we only got this is like the ultimate, ultimate, ultimate tease, right? Like this is not even like a full on see it in motion. It's like see it a half a second in motion, and that's it. And the little bit we got, they look great. They look absolutely great. And I feel that this is going to be a great way to kind of, th- these shows specifically are going to be a great way to kind of entrench the, the fate, the new phase, if you will, or whatever you want to call this, um, new era of Marvel studios, uh, kind of, you know, show us what we're kind of getting ourselves into because, you know, with black widow coming out, you know, we, we see a little, it's kind of not more of the same, and I don't mean that in a bad way, but I feel like with these major characters, w- because it's going forward past infinity, uh, war and, uh, end game, we're going to see kind of where we're going. And I think costume wise, really cool to see what they're, you know, what these heroes are embracing. Cause one of the things I love about comic books is that whenever there's a costume change in uh, a comic book series or like a superhero or whatever, There's always a reason it's something like traumatic happened and there needs to be a change, right? There needs to be something spurns them to change their costume because the costume is the inward of it's, it's, it's their, it's their inner self just outwardly, you know, put out in a very extravagant, you know, kind of ridiculous way. Right. And I think that that that's kind of a, a moral or not moral, but a psychological element that's kind of it's not really utilized in the, in the films yet in the comic books. It's very much used and and talked about and touched on. Whereas it's not, it's just more of like flavor, if you will, in the movies at this point. And I'm curious if they're, you know, with now with all the traumatic things they've gone through and everything, if these costumes might have more meaning and in them changing themselves in the costumes and or uniforms, if you will, what does that mean exactly? And what, you know psychologically and whatnot, and I'm hoping that those things are touched on in these series, because you can kind of—that's what makes me more more excited about these series too—is that you can dive into those psychological elements a lot more than you do than you can with a movie. Because a movie you have to get to the point. With a series, you can kind of explain that, and I think that's what the beauty of the Falcon and Winter Soldier is that you have—you're going to have multiple costume changes. Let's be real, and because we got to see Falcon cap still so where is the psychological element for changing his, his falcon costume to the cap costume to baron zemo wearing a, uh, a new mask now what, you know how is that come into play bucky's change and everything where do those elements you know what what does it mean psychologically for these characters and and i know everyone knows that i'm the costume guy but again it's because the costume not only looks cool, but it represents them as a, who they are on the inside, too, in some ways.
0: Absolutely. Costumes are about character, and it's also what has gone a long way in cementing these characters as icons. And it's a huge part of why they've been endured in the visual medium of comic books.
1: Yeah. So, we, so where does that go in? So, where does that fit into the series as a whole in the MCU as a whole? And I'm hoping that, that maybe Falcon and Winter, Winter Soldier will be that first one that dives into that. Cause just judging from what we saw in this little bitty teaser, there's the costumes are like they're right there. So to me, that could be an emphasis. And I if, if if it is, oh man, I'm ready. I'm already this is one of my most anticipated things was the Falcon and Winter Soldier of the, all, the whole phase. So this just got me even more amped.
0: Yeah, and I think it's Costumes are going to be a big part of it. I mean, the the symbolism of the costumes is definitely going to be a part of this because, I mean, Sam is not going to initially wear a Captain America costume and somebody else has a costume, whether they're calling John Walker Captain America or US agent. Whoever's putting him in that spot obviously wants the world to think of him and embrace him as the new Captain America, be it by that name or another one. And he's got the shield as he's trotting out there, high-fiving the marching pan leader. So, I mean, if Sam doesn't embrace that identity right away and somebody else kind of takes advantage of it, and I don't want to retread too much on the territory that we discussed just a couple of episodes ago in, in episode 151 when we talked about our, the Falcon and the Winter Soldier and our Expanding the Universe series, but just building on some of those points because of this footage we see Sam, I mean, I feel like him throwing the shield, this is early on in the series. I feel like this is him trying to feel comfortable with it. And it's not really the shield itself that he's trying to feel comfortable with. I mean, that's the physical thing that we're seeing with him throwing the shield and pulling it out of the tree in this TV spot. But I think, you know, throwing it around is kind of his own, is, it's this physical way of him trying to feel comfortable with this new identity and taking on the legacy of Captain America because Steve has handed him the shield and given him that blessing. Bucky even gives him that blessing in Endgame. Bucky gives Sam the nod when Steve is handing Sam the shield. But there's a difference between everybody telling you that you're worthy of something and you yourself feeling that you are worthy of that thing, especially when it's this massive honor and this uh, historical legacy of Captain America in in the MCU for one reason or another, he's not immediately taking on the identity of Captain America. He might be trying to throw around the shield, but he gets himself a new Falcon costume, not a new Captain America costume right away. And so there's some part of this where Sam is not going to is not gonna take on that mantle for a bit. And because he doesn't, that's going to create an opportunity for somebody else to put their guy in place, and that's going to be John Walker. And so we see some of that character stuff here, but also another one that this spot brought up that uh, this spot had me thinking about is what we talked about between Bucky and Zemo. We talked about how Bucky would initially want revenge on Zemo, but maybe he decides that that's not what he's going to do. And that's not the best path for him uh, as he's trying to build a new life for himself and a new identity beyond the Winter Soldier and and also just beyond being Steve Rogers friend that he's going to have to go on and, and have this new identity for himself. And we see him confronting Zemo in this footage, and we see a gun that he's pointing at Zemo's face, but then he's just dropping bullets in front of Zemo. And what that tells me is that Bucky is going to have the initial temptation to kill Zemo, and he's going to show Zemo that he wants to kill him, but he's not going to do it. And because he's not going to do it, I think that says a lot about Bucky and what he feels like is the right path, the right moral and ethical way for him to go about his life. And if he's not going to kill Zemo, sure, he could just apprehend the guy, throw him back in jail if that's what's supposed to happen for Zemo right now. But we have also talked about the possibility of Bucky working with Zemo. And this could be the beginning of that, of this uneasy partnership between these guys. Because I know that we look at Zemo and he was the antagonist of Civil War. And if he's back for this series, then he must be the antagonist of it. And it might be that simple. It really could be, but maybe it's not. Maybe there's more to it than that. And maybe Sam and or Bucky find themselves having to work with Zemo at some point in the show. And if that happens, particularly between Bucky and Zemo, I talked about this in the episode about the Falcon and Winter Soldier. We've talked about Zemo multiple times now, as many have speculating as the beginning of Thunderbolts or whatever in the MCU. I still think there's a good chance that if Zemo is gonna be part of the Thunderbolts, that Bucky might also be part of the Thunderbolts and we could see that alliance, even though it's an, an uneasy one and it's one that Bucky probably won't feel great about, we could see the beginnings of that in the Falcon and Winter Soldier. And this scene, while it doesn't prove that that's what's gonna happen in the show, it doesn't disprove it either. And it had me thinking uh, even more about this as, uh, as a possibility. I, th- I think that there is a possibility that he's
1: both the antagonist, but also ends up teaming up with them at the end. That's what I think. It's almost, I think it's it's gonna start off with something like that. He escapes. They have to get him. They get him, and it's in a couple episodes of of them talking to him and, and getting not getting through to him, but basically him being trapped again and and whatever. But then have, he has information, and they have to get him out in the field to get to team up with him to like basically do what they need to do. And that's where I think maybe the Thunderbolts is born is through that. So you're going to see Falcon and winter soldier duke it out with Baron Zemo, but maybe that's why he ends up wearing the mask because he has to wear a mask to get, you know, as he goes out there, they don't want the, the world to see that the, the government and, and Bucky and, and, and Falcon are teaming up with this terrorist, but they need him to come out there. So they put a mask on him So they don't know that it's him. So that's where I'm kind of going with it, because I think there's too much good stuff there to have to have a rivalry between them. And obviously, and or he could just, like you said, Sean, he could just be trapped and they, and they release him because they need his help and they put the mask on him anyway. So I feel the mask is going to be put on him because they need to mask him. And it's not going to be something that he wants to do, but they want him to do, so they don't, you know, whatever. But then he ends up, because he ends up, he's part of the Thunderbolts, he's going to end up using that on a regular basis, which would then make a lot of sense why he would start wearing a mask in the first place.
0: Let's also just think about the idea of another antagonist in this series. Zemo doesn't have the power to appoint a new Captain America. That's not up to him. So somebody is behind this whole John Walker situation, and that person, when Sam Wilson eventually decides he needs to become Captain America... Whatever person or group of people is behind John Walker, they're probably going to be a bigger obstacle. I I think anyway, they could be bigger obstacles for Sam and Bucky than even Zemo because of the amount of power that they would have and the control that they would have over so many different aspects, uh, so many different aspects. So it could be this thing where Zemo starts out initially as an antagonist. And maybe the same people who are appointing John Walker, the new Captain America, as far as the world is concerned, or US agent, whatever you want to call him, those same people are telling Bucky and Sam to hunt down Zemo, and then they finally get Zemo, and Zemo is an antagonist. He's not going to be a big fan of Sam or Bucky, but eventually they're going to figure out, oh, we actually kind of have a common enemy now, don't we? And they work together, and that is the beginning of you know an eventual Thunderbolts type of thing that maybe uh, Zemo and Bucky are both uh, both involved in. But our fan fiction and speculation aside, let's go ahead and let's talk about WandaVision because I, I got a lot more fan fiction that I got to write on this podcast. So we get this WandaVision footage, and I don't have anything where I would say, because I, I get asked this question, what's your most anticipated... Marvel Disney Plus series, or what's your most anticipated MCU project in phase four or beyond or anything. And I don't really have a most anticipated because I am pretty much like just completely amped up and equally anticipating everything. My anticipation level for every single thing that's been announced for phase four, things that we anticipate will be announced. It's pretty much as high as it goes for all of these things. It just doesn't have that extra gear of like a culmination event of an Endgame type of scenario. But if I can play a a game of semantics here, I will say the one that intrigues me the most is WandaVision because I don't know what this is. The description of it doesn't really make sense and yet it kind of does with this whole half sitcom, half MCU epic. Uh, But we got uh, got a lot of, we got a, a really extensive look, I think, even though it was all very fast. We got a pretty good look at the sitcom portion of WandaVision and I love the way that this looks because there are so many different looks. The doorbell rings, we see Vision, and he's saying, Wanda, welcome home. It's black and white, it's 1950s, it's Dick Van Dyke, that type of thing. And then we get these shots that flash by where we get sitcoms and, and sitcom sets and wardrobe that looks like it's from completely different decades. There's something that looks very 70s. We get very, we get something that's Brady Bunch. Uh, there's a shot in there where Wanda very looks very pregnant. Uh, We get things that are maybe more late 80s, early 90s sitcoms with some invisible twins with pacifiers. We see that's in there as well. Uh, There's also a very quick shot of Wanda wearing a very classic looking Scarlet Witch outfit. It's not a real superhero costume. Clearly, it's a, you know, to me just looks like a Halloween costume, just playing dress up for, you know, like a Halloween episode of a sitcom is the way that kind of plays to me. But there's so much really good. There's so many crazy, intriguing shots in this. But I love all of these different sitcom sets because it really is about what that represents. The fact that Vision is the one telling Wanda, he's the one saying, welcome home. I don't think it means that Vision is the one who creates the reality. I think Wanda is the one who's creating this reality for herself. But what she wants to see is Vision. And so when he says, welcome home, that's what she wants. She wants to find some sense of home and be welcomed by Vision, whom she loves and lost in Avengers Infinity War. But then seeing all this other stuff, like these different sitcoms, I mean, she's trying to have this idealized version of family. She's pregnant in one of the shots. um, But also there is the shot where we see Vision, who, yes, is wearing a shirt, very much like a shirt that Vision wore in the Tom King Vision run. But they're standing in front of these two cribs, and we don't see these twins. We just see these pacifiers and there's these little bubble popping sounds as maybe I guess they pop out of the invisible twins' mouths. I don't know. But we see Wanda kind of creating this reality and this family for, for herself. But the fact that we see so many different sitcom sets, it, it really points to that idea and the popular theory that's been out there uh, that Wanda is envisioning, the, no pun intended, this life for herself. And it's really, I just, I love how wacky and, and zany this is. I love that we have this show that not only is going to be half sitcom, but that half sitcom is going to be comprised of several different sitcoms.
1: Yeah. I'm, 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 yeah, I'm kind of speechless because the one thing this could go so many different directions and have a response from, from an audience in so many different ways that could either go horribly wrong or go so horribly, horribly right that we could open up, a lot of different avenues for Marvel storytelling on television or, and even in films. And I'm really praying that WandaVision is as good as I want it to be. I want all these things to be good. Don't get me wrong, but I want WandaVision to really, to do something so different that Kevin Feige and Marvel studios can start saying, you know what Disney plus we can do a little more experimentation. We can do a little bit different stuff. We don't have to do the same things over and over and over again. have you know, again, and I don't think that Marvel does that, but there definitely is a formula that you have to do when you do mainstream television, or excuse me, uh, films, whatnot, blah, blah, blah. I've talked about it a lot. But what I think what's interesting about the television shows is that with a lower budget and, I think with everything going or, you know, with having more time to tell stories, there's a lot more you can do. And like just like how I talked about the, psycho- the the psychological elements of superhero costumes and how you could explore how that might affect a hero or what they might do, et cetera, et cetera. With WandaVision, it's a whole different set of things with her power levels just being bonkers. And how you can really like you already know that the family aspect is going to be a heavy, heavy thing. In this movie or in this show that we it, you can go so many different directions with it and again it's not just you can't think of it just in a vacuum of it by itself even though they want you to think of it by itself in a vacuum when you watch it we also know the ramifications are going to be going outward it's not it's going to be inside itself the ramifications are going to be going outward into the next uh, Doctor Strange film. And what, that, what does that mean for Wanda going forward after Doctor Strange? Because just like in the comic books, the one thing that we all love about superhero comic books like DC and obviously Marvel is that when something happens, writers will come back to it later on. They may not always immediately come back to it, but they plant seeds to come back later, just like any great serialized storytelling uh, writer would do. And I think that, to me, is what's really exciting about, I think, WandaVision, are what exactly are they going to be doing in the seeds that will be planting that aren't just going to be picked up immediately after Doctor Strange and the Multiverse of Madness? What are the ramifications from this show that are going to be felt in later films and later television series and a future Avengers films, et cetera, et cetera? I've gone on record many a time, Sean, and talked about Young Avengers would not I think that's going to be the next something like that incarnation is going to be the next Avengers film. I don't think it's going to be a straight ahead Avengers, you know, new Avengers right away. I think Young Avengers are definitely coming and they're definitely going to be the next quote unquote Avengers film. It's not going to be the Avengers film, but it's going to have that Avengers brand name in it. I think this is a definite definite setup for that. What exactly it's it's going to be foreshadowing, we don't know.
0: It could be, but these kids may not be real. There's a good chance they're not.
1: Well, but again, but what is the next film? The Multiverse of Madness. What exactly does is, and again, with Wanda being, I'm assuming, a lot of assumptions here, so bear with me, with the assumptions that the fact that she's going to be a big part of that movie and you know, everything, what exactly is she going to pull from a different reality into their universe exactly? What exactly are, is... She going to be fighting because with her power level, just all over the place. And again, I love the idea that her power level isn't exactly defined. What does she do? And again, that's exactly what happens in the comics. She creates these people, these, these kids that aren't real, but yet they show up in young Avengers and they're Wiccan and speed. So what exactly is it? We don't know. And again, like you, you brought up beautifully, Sean, about the vision comic book. How do we know these aren't going to be robot characters? Or if how I like to do it, Sean, is split the difference. Give me one human child and one robot child, and then that that to me is what would be perfect. And so that is what I think is what what is this gonna set up? This is what again. I'm here's my money. Here's my receipt. So just write this down <laughs> for me. Uh, I'm gonna steal that from you. So I think that... I, I'm not the one not... who
0: invented the phrasing of receipt. Well,
1: I know, but, but, but we're, we're talking. You always bring it up. So I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to take something from you on this. Here's my receipt. I think that WandaVision will not... It will not reveal her children. It's going to set up her children. The Multiverse of Madness will do that. And I think it's going to definitely be two children... But I definitely think it's gonna be one robot, one child, because you're gonna to wanna to have a tie to vision at some point. You wanna have that the young vision character, if you will. And it's gonna be they could be from different realities, but put together. Something like that. That's where my money's going. I don't think they go full full bore into that because I think that this show is gonna be the dynamics of her and vision directly. And then the multiverse of madness is her dealing with the visions loss, and, and, and ramifications of her powers going out of control. And then so out of control that she pulls two children from different, multi, to, from different dimensions to this reality. And then they're stuck here as a byproduct of that. And again, think of the dramatic tension.
0: So she's kidnapping kids because those kids from, other, from the multiverse would have parents. I hope they're orphans.
1: Well, we we don't know. That's my whole point. We don't we don't know exactly because we don't know she's we don't. Here's the thing: the cancer verse. Now, think about this: the cancer verse could be a big part of the multiverse of madness. And if that's the case, then they're destroying realities. So, if the cancer verse is a real thing that the Doctor Strange is going to fight, she could be pulling them to save them. That part. So, think of that that way. So that's where this is where I'm going with it, and I think again. And what I also worry about, if that's what I think is going to happen, Wanda could be biting the dust in Multiverse of Madness or for a short period of time. Whoa. I
0: said it here. Document it. Go for it. All right. No, it's it's your receipt. It's documented. So um, now there's, uh, I, I think there are, here's one other connection between this show and in the Multiverse of Madness besides the twins. Is even though we are not getting because we've been told by Elizabeth Olsen that we are going to see you know the idea of Wanda really being the Scarlet Witch in this series, and so I'm thinking about okay, well that means a lot of different things. It means the power level, it means the name, but it also means the costume, in my opinion. So and your opinion as well, mm-hmm. I would guess. So, yeah, um, where the costume that we're seeing here in this little clip is not a real Scarlet Witch costume. It's an homage to the comic books that I think is part of Halloween dress-up as part of this whole sitcom thing.
1: And it looks amazing.
0: But, but, if Wanda is envisioning it here and likes it, mm-hmm. it inspires mm-hmm. an actual Scarlet Witch MCU costume exactly. in Doctor Strange, the Multiverse of Madness. But I said it, you didn't. It's my receipt, not yours. Uh, <laughs> Woo! But I, I, I'm pumped because I, 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 I thought with the same me on thing. That, so, it will We'll share that receipt. We'll oh, share that. Uh, both, it's in both our names. Yeah, we will. Th- th- uh, we, don't ha- we don't need separate yeah, checks on that there one. There Same thing. Um, anyway, but I want to talk about a, a couple of other things about the reality of this and or lack thereof or who's creating it. So somehow Wanda is creating this, but how? I don't know. Is she doing this consciously or subconsciously? Is somebody making her do this? Because she doesn't see... There's a, a, a very key moment in this footage where she has snapped out of the reality. We see this television set. She answers it, black and white, Vision Residence. But then all of a sudden, we're snapped out of it. And she is in normal clothes. And she appears in color in a black and white shot. And she's kind of reeling. We see her kind of falling back a little bit. Vision is falling back as well. But he's still in black and white, not in color, which suggests to me that he is still very much a part of this fictional reality Whereas Wanda is temporarily snapped out of it and becomes very con- becomes her very present conscious self, and I think she's gonna you know and her reaction to being snapped from that reality has me wondering. Uh, well, first it has me confirming that the reality is somehow coming from her or attached to her, but it did have me wondering maybe she's not the one totally in control here, and maybe somebody is is forcing this situation upon her in some way or, or forcing her to create these realities for herself for some other reason it's not just about wanda creating something for herself just to make herself feel better it might be that but maybe there's something else at play here because she does seem to respond uh she seems to be shocked and even kind of sad when she see when as she's as she breaks from this sitcom reality in a very brief moment And i know i'm reading a lot into something that only lasts for a second in this footage but it did have me thinking about that and i do think it's key that wanda it looks like when wanda breaks from the reality she becomes a very very present looking in color and also in in her wardrobe very normal looking self whereas vision is still tied to the sitcom reality so maybe vision's not coming back to life in the mcu or at least not in these moments in the show but i also want to get into we we've been talking about character and the and the psychology of these characters And I was saving this for our Expanding the Universe episode, but I might as well say it now because we had this footage and it had me thinking about it. Ever since we found out about the sitcom influence on this show, I've been thinking about why that's the case. And if it's Wanda who's creating these realities, whether she's doing it all on her own or she's doing it subconsciously or she's being subconsciously compelled to create and explore these sitcom realities, why are they sitcoms? Why would that be the thing that Wanda Maximoff would create? And so I started thinking about her history. And if you go back to Avengers Age of Ultron and Wanda and Pietro growing up there, it wasn't a bad place only when the Avengers showed up. Zemo in Captain America Civil War says Sokovia was a failed state before the Avengers had ever arrived. So Sokovia was not a great place to grow up. It was not a safe place to grow up. And so I'm start- I started thinking about what Wanda as a kid would think about and what would create or, or give her a sense of the ideal family life where you're happy, you're safe, you're feeling good. So I'm imagining little Wanda Maximoff with her brother Pietro probably watching reruns of old American sitcoms on some crappy TV in their apartment in Sokovia and just this is what it was. This was her escape from the horrors and the, the unease, the tension of her daily life, her escape was these types of shows on a television set, and this is where she constructed, or where, where she got a sense of an idea of a happy, safe, ideal family life. It came from this. So when she's trying to create that for herself, whether it's because she wants to, or subconsciously she's doing it, or somebody is compelling her to... Her idea, what she's going to create for herself would be these sitcoms that she saw that represented the ideal family life when she was a little kid, the life that she could not have, but always wanted. I think that's why it's coming from that type of... I think it's, that's why it's coming from that kind of place for her uh, psychologically in WandaVision. And we'll go ahead and, and mark this down as, as another receipt. I don't know, though, if, we'll even, if they'll even go that deep into it in WandaVision. And if they don't address why sitcoms in WandaVision... And this will just be my fan fiction headcanon version of, of why that is. But if we're going to get an explanation for it, I wouldn't be surprised if, this ends up, if that ends up being the case in WandaVision. But we're going to talk a lot more about that show. We still have to address it in our, uh, in our Expanding the Universe series. Yes. But before we move on to Loki, we just need to note, even though you already know it. So we did get via the quarterly earnings call from Disney CEO Bob Iger, he confirmed that the Falcon and the Winter Soldier will be, uh, that will premiere on Disney Plus in August. We didn't get a specific date, but we got the month. And WandaVision will premiere. We already knew it was moving up to 2020. We now know when we'll see it this year. It will be in December. So we got Disney covering the map or covering the calendar on Disney Plus. The Falcon and the Winter Soldier in August, with Marvel and Star Wars. Falcon and Winter Soldier in August. Mandalorian Season 2 in October. And then, of course, WandaVision in December. And so we're going to have a lot of Marvel to talk about this year with Black Widow coming up, of course, on the 1st of May. And then we've got six episodes of Falcon and Winter Soldier starting in August, six episodes of WandaVision starting in December. I can't wait to talk about all this stuff. We're going to talk about WandaVision a lot more uh, because now we're just two episodes away and are expanding the universe series. Eternals will be next because that's going to be out in November. Uh, and then, of course, WandaVision will be up next in uh, in December after that for the December 2020 release. So we'll talk a lot more about that very, very soon. But let's go ahead and let's talk about Loki a little bit. We only got one shot, but that's because Loki has not been in production for months like the Falcon and the Winter Soldier and WandaVision already have been, which is why I did when I made my guess on the Daily Bugle that I thought we were going to get Disney Plus footage from Falcon and Winter Soldier and WandaVision, I didn't guess Loki because it hadn't really been in production very long, but we got one shot of Loki say, threatening somebody, saying he's going to burn this place to the ground, but it's not so much the shot, it's not so much what Loki says, it's what Loki's wearing. He's wearing, yeah. And he's got this prison-looking jumpsuit with the initials TVA on it, which as many have already speculated, and I think it's going to ultimately prove to be correct, TVA probably stands for the Time Variance Authority, and that's a group in Marvel Comics that uh, they're basically a a huge bureaucracy, and they monitor timelines for various anomalies and threats. Uh, They were created by Walt Simonson and Sal uh, Buscema, uh, and they they actually created the Time Variance Authority, and I didn't know this ahead of time. This is where you research for podcasts, uh, but they were actually created to honor Mark Gruenwald who was a longtime Marvel writer and editor and a uh, longtime Marvel continuity expert. But I got to be totally honest, Paul, like I didn't have a ton of familiarity and I still don't have a ton of familiarity with the Time Variance Authority, but I had already read their first appearance and so have you because they first appeared in Walt Simonson's Mm. Thor run. The first time uh, Wikipedia shows that their first appearance was issue 372. It's actually 371 because I went back and reread those issues. So there was just one member of the Time Variance Authority, one officer named Justice Peace, uh, who, was in the, who was from the Time Variance Authority, showed up in Thor 371. And then again, in th- the story continued in 372, ultimately helped Thor save the life of Jane Foster. Now, things are not always like for like in the MCU, but... When you look at the purpose of the Time Variance Authority in Marvel Comics, and to be clear, they are not good at their jobs in Marvel comic books because people mess with timelines all the time in Marvel comic books, so they're not great at it. I don't know how effective they will be in the MCU. They've been effective enough to apprehend Loki, but their role in this makes sense and fits with their role in the comic books because Loki all by himself, even if, when we consider the version of Loki that this is... He might do things in the show that draw the attention of the Time Variance Authority, but his very existence could already draw the attention of the Time Variance Authority. Mm-hmm. He's not supposed to be there. This is the Loki who escaped with the Tesseract in Avengers Endgame during after, immediately after the Battle of New York, which, as we know, is not what originally happened. That only happened because the Avengers went back and messed with the timeline, and an accident happened, and Loki got away. So this version of Loki is an anomaly and a threat all by himself. It wouldn't surprise me if this episode actually opens with the Time Variance Authority having already arrested Loki. I'm not saying that's that's how it's going to go down, but it wouldn't shock me if if that's what it was. But either way, Loki, his mere existence already offends the the TVA. And if that's not enough, then he's going to be doing other things. Uh, as he messes around with the Tesseract that he got away with and maybe other things that he discovers uh, along the way. Uh, but it's just mm-hmm. cool to see this very obscure organization from Marvel Comics lore possibly having a, a decent-sized role in uh, in this series.
1: So I, I, o- I only noticed the jumpsuit because, again, I don't rewatch a lot of the trailers because of many reasons. I like to try to stay as surprised as possible for everything. And then when you said TVA, I I don't even know their names, but I knew exactly who you're talking about because in the comic books I read as a kid, I read the Walt Simonson's Fantastic Four run, which is a great run, by the way. Fantastic run. They show up there.
0: Yeah. And you you get a much better feel for the actual organization in that run.
1: Exactly. And what's really cool about them is that Justice character, which I remember I remember him having a really cool bike mm-hmm. that he was on, and he teamed up with the Fantastic Four, and and Walt Simonson's art in the '90s, just like it was in the '80s. I, I almost feel it was even better in the '90s because it just looked phenomenal. His Fantastic Four art is just incredible. Um, I can't, I really can't say much more about Walt Simonson other than that he's one of the best comic ra- artists ever to walk this earth, and he's incredible, and also seems like a very nice man, which is also nice to to know. But but anyway. That being said, so when when you said when you're just talking about it right now, I went TVA. Those those and th- this is who I, I immediately thought of they're faceless men. They're, they're at least what he drew it as, and I'm sure they probably incorporate yeah, more.
0: The original guy Justice Peace was not faceless though. He
1: yeah, he was the only one who wasn't faceless,
0: but everyone yeah, he was looking like an X-wing pilot.
1: <laughs> no, it really is perfect. And but all the people that are in the office, they're all faceless, and they're and they're all. Like they all have desk on top of each other. There's no floor. And it's just, just just count. It looks like infinite people at desk. And they're all faceless. And I love that weird, just trippy kind of idea. And going back to WandaVision and all of that, they are really going deep into this these ideas. And what does that mean exactly? And again, talk about going back to wanda what does that mean for wanda to, you know at this point And yeah. so there's i love the fact that marvel is just incorporating so many different elements that really will make fun stories and again i don't know if that would make a great let's say movie thing to put into necessarily but in a tv show like loki
0: perfect and i think well, yeah. it gives him an antagonist exactly I mean, Cause let's be honest, we're going to be rooting for Loki in the show. Yeah. And,
1: and there's no, and if these time variant authority isn't going to be good or bad to someone that that's going to be pursuing him, that you don't necessarily can say, well, kids, that one's like, he's a good guy and Loki's still the bad guy. No, no, no. It's just, it's him running amok in timelines. There's no real ramifications for real world people, you know, to for kids to be influenced. Like, I should muck up the timeline. They can't muck up a timeline, obviously. So I guess what I'm what I'm trying to get at is that Disney can kind of get away with having Loki be bad without having to having to you know basically answer for it if that makes any sense. Because it's a perfect you know thing to kind of get away with. So. I love it. The fact that they're incorporating such a deep cut from the Marvel comics is going to be, I think, a lot of fun. And I also think it's going to be a trip to see. And again, it's going to be different.
0: It's going to be so insane when you look at how much we're going to get and just how crazy Marvel is going with it. And I love that they're taking big swings. and. I've never really subscribed to the idea that that Marvel's been playing it safe. I think they've taken bold steps, big risks throughout the entire construction of the MCU up until this point. But you got to keep going and you got to keep pushing the boundaries. And I think we really see them doing that in all of the footage that we saw from these Disney Plus series, but particularly WandaVision and just this little piece with Loki. And a couple more things I want to touch on before we move on to some Captain Marvel stuff is. I love Tom Hiddleston's, I know it's just one tiny little clip, but his performance. I mean, he is the sinister Loki that we met in the first Thor and Avengers that we haven't seen in a while uh, since maybe the, the first act or so of, of uh, Thor The Dark World. And he's clearly having a lot of fun with it in just this one little bit that we see. And, and I love getting that part of it. But also, I, I talked about how I don't see us rooting against Loki in this series, What's fascinating about what this series is going to touch on for me is the idea of Loki's redemption arc having not happened in this timeline in the MCU, in this alternate timeline that was created in Endgame, but does that mean that this version of Loki won't have any sort of uh, redemption arc at all? I think he's going to. I think this experience with the Time Variance Authority, or maybe it's with somebody else, Maybe maybe it doesn't have anything to do with the TVA, but... I feel like this version of Loki might start out feeling being the same guy that we met from Avengers. That's obvious. But over the course of the show, I think this Loki might also find his own path to redemption and finding out that he has a bigger part to play in the universe and that there are there's some he still has to atone for the things that he's done in some way. And he might still end up doing that in this series. One other thing that I want to throw out there is that I think the involvement of the TVA might be an answer to the question of how time travel is going to be part of this series because we heard about time travel being a part of this. Steven Broussard said as much, and who's an executive producer on the series? He said as much in the Expanding the Universe special on Disney Plus. And I've been wondering how exactly that was going to happen because Loki grabbed the space stone, not the time stone, in Avengers Endgame. Although I think the space stone could have a time travel esque application to it, and that might all that might also be part of the the equation here in this series because. The Space Stone effectively is a form of time travel. If you're able to go across the entire universe or across an entire galaxy in a matter of seconds, that is time travel because you're skipping all the travel time that you would actually have to get from one spot to the other. So in a way, it sort of is. And maybe Loki is able to stretch that application in different ways. Or maybe he can't use the Space Stone to do that. But clearly, the Time Variance Authority can travel through time. That's their job. So whatever equipment they use to travel through time might be what Loki uses to get to different places and time hop in this series, and maybe time hopping is also traveling through the multiverse that ties into Doctor Strange and the Multiverse of Madness. So there's a lot of different things that I could see emerging from the Time Variance Authority, and I don't want to say that they are totally going to be a big part of the MCU going forward, but I could see a way for the TVA to not have their role limited to this series. It might be, but it's not like Loki is the only anomaly in the timeline. The Avengers went back and messed with the timeline in Endgame, and there could, be, there could still be unintended consequences as a result of that. I mean, one thing that we already saw in Endgame was 2014 Thanos and his army coming to the present day and battling the Avengers at Avengers Compound. They were able to solve that problem But that may not be the only way that time messed back, as Tony was uh, referring to in Endgame. And maybe the Time Variance Authority is another unintended consequence. Maybe Loki isn't the only one they go after. Maybe he's just the first person that we see them go after in the MCU. Uh, But one more thing that we got to touch on. I know I said we were going to go to Captain Marvel, but we forgot to mention that Owen Wilson is reportedly going to play a major role in this Loki series. We don't know who he's going to be playing in the series. The role is unnamed. The news was originally reported by comicbook.com. All we know is it's supposed to be a significant role in this series. I love Owen Wilson. I think he's hilarious, but I also think he's underrated as a dramatic actor. I also love the history of Tom Hiddleston impersonating Owen Wilson and even impersonating Owen Wilson as Loki in Avengers. That happened too. You can look it up. It's hilarious. So I love that these two guys are coming together on this series. And I just wonder who Owen Wilson is playing. I can't really, I don't immediately think of a Marvel character for Owen Wilson. And maybe you do, Paul, and I would love to know. But once we saw the Time Variance Authority in the Disney Plus clip, I thought, well, maybe he's Justice Peace or some other TVA top cop, because I could totally see Owen Wilson being the guy tracking down Loki in this series. But it could be a a totally different role. I'm not sure where your head's at for Owen Wilson in Loki.
1: How about we do this? I'm going to save what I think about Owen Wilson. I will tell you privately, Sean, but for all you, I'm going to wait for our road to a uh, road show.
0: Expanding the universe.
1: Mm hmm. So uh, I- I'm going to save it for there because there's I think there's a lot.
0: All right. Fair enough. There's a lot
1: to chew on with this. And I, it, 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 we're going long. So I'm just going to say this. I will go forth with my with my prediction and I will tell you off the air so you can have the receipt. Okay, and know that I'm not because I think people are going to probably jump on the same bandwagon as I am eventually, without me even saying anything. But I want you to know I've thought about this already. When I when I first heard it, I went I knew exactly what was going to I I knew exactly what I thought or think is going to happen. So we'll move on from there. But we'll
0: I'll go deeper later on. Sounds good. So stay tuned for our expanding the universe series, which will get going again next week, unless some other massive story drops. Um, So before we talk about Captain Marvel. I just want to take a moment to let you know how you can support the show by following us on Instagram, which is way more active than it used to be at Marvel Studios News. We're also on Facebook at Marvel Studios News or on Twitter at Marvel Newscast. But I also want to thank people who've been supporting us on our Patreon. So thank you very much to Happy Dragon Pictures, Jason Williams, Jenna Urbina, Jacob Smith, Michael Fields, Joshua Watts, and Brian Lee. They are some of the latest patrons over at Patreon.com slash Marvel Studios News where we offer exclusive podcasts that are not available anywhere else, including the Marvel Unlimited Book Club. We're going to record that right after this episode of the podcast. We're going to be talking about one of our favorite books in recent years, Immortal Hulk. Uh, But also we have other exclusives like the Daily Bugle, the Monday through Friday news show that I've mentioned a couple times in this episode. And if you do sign up and you get exclusive audio, exclusive podcasts, that comes with a private RSS link that you can use to subscribe via Apple Podcasts or another podcatcher. So you get all of your content, the main podcast that you're hearing now, and the Patreon exclusive content. It's all in one feed. You don't have to track it down in multiple places. And we also have our exclusive Discord community on our Patreon where we do watch parties. We do office hours where I just jump in and we do a voice chat with anybody who's around. You can ask me questions or we can just talk about the news like we did last week when the Sam Raimi news broke. And we also just have a great community there that's always talking about and sharing Marvel news, sharing our joy and enthusiasm for this franchise. So check out that Discord community, check out the, all the exclusives that we offer uh, and figure out how you can sign up and get those exclusives. All of that information is available at patreon.com slash Marvel Studios News. Our last story for this episode is about the Captain Marvel sequel, because we have a writer attached to the movie, but we also know that the directors for the first film will not be back. So a couple of weeks ago, The Hollywood Reporter reported the news that WandaVision writer and story editor Megan McDonnell will be penning the script for the Captain Marvel sequel, which is said to be set in the present day. Uh, But in that same article, THR mentioned that directors Anna Bowden and Ryan Fleck will not be back for the sequel. They may do something else for Marvel, possibly a Disney Plus series. Marvel is said to be looking for a female director for this sequel. I want to first talk about Megan McDonnell as a writer. I don't really, I think her first major credit is on WandaVision, but it speaks to her work on that series. It obviously speaks to Marvel's confidence in that series, so that's another good note for WandaVision but also speaks to Megan McDonald's work, the quality of her work on that series specifically that Marvel is choosing her to write the, the script for Captain Marvel 2, which is a very big deal. But also even before that happened, taking her from the role of staff writer to story editor, which is a bigger role in char- that's really overseeing more of the overall series. So it's a good promotion that she already had. And now obviously it's a huge endorsement for Marvel Studios to be writing the script Uh, for this Captain Marvel sequel, but also a a WandaVision connection here between the Captain Marvel franchise and that upcoming Disney Plus series. Who's a part of WandaVision that we didn't talk about because we didn't see her in the Disney Plus footage? Monica Rambeau, Lieutenant Trouble, all grown up, is in WandaVision. And presumably that's a character who could be in a Captain Marvel sequel that would be set in the present day. So there is that connection. But I think, Paul, we're going to spend more time talking about the about Anna Bowden and Ryan Fleck not being back as directors. You, it's a little surprising because you you think about a movie that made a billion dollars last year, over 1.1 billion dollars, and you almost just assume that the directors would be back. But I can under, I mean, and we don't know why they're not back. We don't know if it's because Marvel Studios wants to go in another direction, or maybe Anna Boden and Ryan Fleck want to focus on something else they don't want to do a Captain Marvel sequel. We don't know, and there was no reporting as to what, reason, uh, what the reason is why uh, they are not going to be back to helm the sequel. But as much as I love the first Captain Marvel film, and I really do love it, you can go back to our spoiler review and you can listen to me explain how much I love it. I also felt like there was, there was still some untapped potential there. And I think there was more that could have been gotten out of that particular story and the character of Carol Danvers, that even though I I think the movie is mostly great, there were enough opportunities there for improvement that I could see where going in a different direction might benefit the sequel and, and breathe some new life into the franchise. Not that it needs a ton of new life, it's a brand new franchise, but taking things in another direction can just continue to keep it fresh coming off of that first film as well as Captain Marvel's appearance in Avengers Endgame. And I do think there are a couple of really great director options that are out there for Marvel Studios. One of the names that immediately came to mind, and really it's, it's a name that's been on my mind for the Captain Marvel sequel for a while now, ever since I saw Booksmart last year, I thought, wow, if Anna Boden and Ryan Fleck aren't going to be back, Olivia Wilde would be a hell of a director for the Captain Marvel franchise, starting with Captain Marvel 2. And she actually said in an interview last year, I don't remember who it was with, And I don't remember if she said specifically Marvel or superhero movies, but she did say she was definitely interested in making a Marvel movie or at least making a superhero movie. So if she's interested and she showed how great of a filmmaker she was with Booksmart last year, she would be a fantastic choice for uh, Olivia Wilde would be a great choice, I think, to take over as the director of the Captain Marvel franchise. But there's one more name that I want to throw out there because... Of all the directors out there who've not directed a Marvel movie, the one I most want to direct a Marvel movie is D. Reese. I've talked about that name before I talked about it. I think I've talked about it on this podcast. I know I've talked about it on our Patreon shows. I think I even talked about wanting her to direct a Marvel movie when I was doing superhero news on YouTube. I'm a big fan of D. Reese. She made arguably, I think, the best movie of 2017 with Mudbound, but also a couple years ago. She directed, there was this promotion for Walmart going into the Super Bowl or big game where they had three filmmakers make a 30-second spot based on the Walmart shipping box. And I know that sounds silly, but they had D. Reese do one, Hans Zimmer did one, and Melissa McCarthy did the other one. And if you just go to YouTube and search D. Reese Walmart box, you will find a video of the ad. She did this ad where... It's this crazy, pulpy, science fiction, space adventure, Flash Gordon type of thing where the, and it's this adventure where Mary J. Blige is the antagonist and it's going through its spaceships and monsters and all of this this stuff is happening in a 30 second TV spot and you find out that what's actually happening is that this is an adventure that's going on in the imagination of this little girl who is watching a science fiction movie from outside of a hole that she's cut from, uh, from the Walmart box. So she's sitting inside this box, watching a movie through the hole that she's cut out, and she's imagining her own adventure. And it was just such a clever and imaginative use of the concept that also showed D. Reese's clear interest in genre material. And I remember tweeting at the time that something to the effect of that any studio, if you got superheroes or Star Wars, you should be taking you should be trying to get a meeting with D Reese to direct your superhero or Star Wars movie because clearly she's interested. And then of course and I'm not saying that it's it's all based on a commercial, but it was a really great ad and a really clever idea. But she proved the caliber of filmmaker that she was in directing Mudbound. So D Reese would be an awesome choice to direct Captain Marvel 2. The only reason I wouldn't want her to direct Captain Marvel 2 is because I kind of want her to be able to start her own franchise with a brand new, not a, not a sequel, although she would be awesome with Captain Marvel 2, but if D. Reese could start a brand new franchise for Marvel Studios, I really would love that, and she is my top choice for Fantastic Four, which we know Marvel Studios is going to be working on very, very soon, but getting back to Captain Marvel 2, uh, I do think that there could be a benefit to finding a new filmmaker especially if we get somebody like Olivia Wilde or D. Reese. Not saying they're the only two candidates, but they're just the top two on my list right now.
1: I, I'm not really that heartbroken over those directors leaving the Captain Marvel series or film because I liked Captain Marvel. I didn't love it. I, I rewatched it a few months ago and it definitely is an enjoyable film, but it's not it's not good enough for me that I feel that they made an impact on it enough to where I said, we need to have these people back. It it, it just wasn't, it just wasn't there. And so with that being said, I, I think, you know, I'm not super familiar a lot with directors anymore. I just, I just don't have the knowledge as I once did, but I do watch a lot of star Wars stuff. And I will say this, there are two names immediately that, that that I want to bring out and one would be Deborah Chow yep because Deborah Chow um directed her butt off in the Mandalorian uh, episode 3 and I think if you want to have a you know keep the uh female director kind of thing going on
0: I think she also did uh 7 right
1: yeah she did 3 and 7 um and if you want to keep, you know, have it more again with the female director, you know, directing a female superhero, which again would be rad. Um, I think she'd be an excellent choice. I know she's busy doing the Kenobi series soon, and I cannot wait for that. But obviously, Captain Marvel's going to be a little bit so, and we don't know if
0: over Obi- one. No, I mean if yeah, I, I don't know if uh, depend yeah, because Kenobi's been delayed. I, I think that might end up taking Deborah Chow out of, the, out of the running, because by the time it actually gets going again, it may not be, she may not be done with it in time for Captain Marvel. But I, I agree that she would be a great choice. I just think there might be an issue of availability.
1: Now, the other name that I'm going to say that I have been pounding the table for Star Wars to get their act together and just give this guy a freaking movie because he's amazing is Rick Fumiyama. And I, I have not seen any of his films. To be quite honest, I've heard Dope is fantastic.
0: It is. Uh,
1: Obviously, and I need to see it because I think it's something my wife would really be into honestly. And he obviously was tapped to direct Flash for a long time and bailed out and said, you know what? Not really feeling it. I'm out. And with all that. It was
0: more Warner Brothers wasn't feeling it, but they should have been feeling it. He had, they had very different ideas of what that movie was going to be. And I like Rick family. wasn't, I I like what he thought of better. No, for sure.
1: Yeah, so here's the thing: the Mandalorian episodes from uh, Disney Plus here are his episodes are my favorite. They are hands down. They
0: did two and six.
1: Yeah, he, he did the uh, the child and um, uh, it's the one. The, it's it's basically the Suicide Squad of yeah, Star Wars. Yeah, with Bill Burr, which, they go
0: off to uh, they go off to the prison prison ship and and everything. Well, you know the episode.
1: Yeah, Bill Burr, it's fantastic. Um, and I love it. And the dude just, especially the child episode two is my favorite episode of the whole series. And it's because he does a lot with very little and just, I love the stuff he, he came up with and he, he captured a lot of moods without with, with a faceless character, essentially. And he captured it by camera angles and, and, and getting in reflecting light off of different things off his helmet. and. This, all that stuff, all of that was all through direction and p- camera placement, and it takes a very talented director to convey emotion off of something that has is not conveying emotion at all. And I was really impressed with all of that, and I just really, really liked those episodes. And knowing Dope's a great movie from what I'm hearing from a lot of p- different people, you included, Sean. I I just think that maybe they should look into that. Rick it would be a great so you know, someone would be great for the Marvel Cinematic Universe. And so um that would be my you know, and he's obviously you know hasn't had a franchise film with the exception of Star Wars uh television, and I think he'd be perfect for it. So yeah, I, I that's where I'd throw my name in. Deborah Chow or him, even though I'd love them for them to stay in Star Wars, I would Rick should be directing a Star Wars movie, in my opinion. But if he's not gonna direct a Star Wars movie. Give it a Marvel film. I think he'd kill Captain Marvel personally. So
0: I mean, I kind of want him to direct Kevin Feige's Star Wars movie is kind that's of that's fair. Of, uh, yeah, I can take that if I'm dreaming about things where I get whatever I want. Yeah. Rick Famuyiwa is I'm a huge fan of his. I loved dope. I was so excited that he was doing Flash and I was crushed when he was no longer doing Flash. And I just thought that was and I still think it's a mistake by Warner Brothers to not have kept him in. And gone uh you know been more open to his ideas and, and got that movie made because hey we still don't have a flash movie at this point so um i'm a big fan of him and, and i would if he came in and did captain marvel 2 uh, i would be excited about that but just looking at his work in dope specifically i mean you brought up the idea of young avengers earlier in the show i would love him to do for him to do a young avengers slash champions movie he would be one of my top picks for something like that but I know, obviously, Marvel is searching for a female director for Captain Marvel 2, but if they were to, you know, if they, if they don't find somebody that they, that they match up with there or they think is the right idea, although they should be able to find one. There are plenty of great female directors who would be beyond interested in an opportunity with Captain Marvel 2, so I think Marvel will be able to find a female director, but I still want uh, Rick Famuyiwa to do something in the MCU at some point. And there are other candidates out there for Captain Marvel 2. I know a lot of people would uh, look at Greta Gerwig, who, of course, did uh, Lady Bird and and Little Women most recently, and I love both of those and thought she was great. And so if she ended up getting the job, I don't know if it's something that she would be interested in. And I don't know if I've ever heard or seen an interview with her where she was talking about superhero movies or any interest she might have. I know Olivia Wilde is interested. I know that Dee Reese is clearly interested in genre material. So that's why I kind of uh, I, I look at them. But. There are other candidates. I mean, Catherine Bigelow, if you want to go with a, a bigger name director who might be able to, to step in with the Captain Marvel franchise. But I, I think there are a lot of options and we could, I could just keep rattling off a list of names of people that uh, of women who I think would be great choices to direct the Captain Marvel sequel. But at the top of my list right now, I've got Olivia Wilde and D. Reese. D. Reese is my overall top pick to direct any Marvel movie at this point. I would just prefer she get to build her own franchise for Marvel Studios from the ground up. Uh, but if that's not going to be the case, then I would love her for Captain Marvel 2. Uh, but in an, a perfect world for me right now, Olivia Wilde directs Captain Marvel 2. D. Reese directs Fantastic Four. And just because we're trying to collect receipts out there, uh, I have receipts on the Patreon and elsewhere, but I don't know if I've ever put them on the main show. My top pick for Reed Richards, and I was saying it before anybody else has started saying it recently. Uh, Bill Hader is actually my top pick for Reed Richards in the fantastic four. I know I'm going a little off topic here, but if we're going to go off the beaten path and have somebody who's not necessarily as obvious of a pick for Reed Richards, take a look at, if you didn't watch the good place, which just wrapped up its series recently, watch Chidi Adagonia in, in the good place played by William Jackson Harper. That's another top pick of mine. He is also on my short list for Reed Richards. And if you were pairing either William Jackson Harper or Bill Hader as Reed Richards with D. Reese as the director, I would be feeling really, really good about Fantastic Four. But anyway, this show is not about Fantastic Four because that movie hasn't even been officially announced yet. So that's where we will go ahead and wrap up this episode of the Marvel Studios News Podcast. Thank you so much for listening. Thank you again for all of your support recently. We really do appreciate it. And for all the other support you've given uh, the podcast since we've been doing it, which is now actually coming up on its uh, fifth anniversary next month. I can't believe it's been that long. It's been that long already. Uh, but anyway, thank you so much. We really do appreciate it. Paul, let everybody know where they can find you.
1: You can find me on Twitter at herman 22 at 2 ends. also on Instagram, herman 22 at 2 ends. And also check out my other podcast, uh, The Saga Continues. My good friends Kyle and, uh, Kyle and Tim. It's getting late. And uh, pretty soon we'll be uh, doing a little Disneyland adventure uh, soon with Sean and uh, those guys in a, in a couple of weeks. So I'm very excited. So yeah, check us out there.
0: It'll be fun. And uh, you can find me on Twitter and Instagram at Mr. Sean Gerber. Sean spelled S-E-A-N. Also make sure you follow the show on Instagram at Marvel Studios News. And now we're going to head over to our Patreon credit scene, where we're going to be discussing the Oscars, Taika Waititi picking up an Oscar, and Avengers Endgame not getting any Oscars. He was only nominated for one, which it did not win. We're going to be talking about that over on the Patreon. So for more information on that, please visit patreon.com slash Marvel Studios News. Thanks again to Podcorn for sponsoring this episode. And so for Marvel Studios News and Paul, I'm Sean. Thanks for listening. We'll see you next time.